welcome to Tea and Tattle, a podcast featuring inspiring conversations with creative women around the world. I'm your host, Miranda Mills, and this week I'm joined by the London-based author, Sarah Collins, to discuss Sarah's debut novel, The Confessions of Franny Langton. Set in Jamaica and London in the early 19th century, The Confessions of Franny Langton begins with a trial at London's Old Bailey. The eponymous Franny, made to Mr. and Mrs. Benham, is charged with murdering her master and mistress. Suffering from shock, Franny is unable to remember the immediate events that led up to the deaths, but she is certain that she couldn't have killed Mrs. Benham, whom she loved. Intent on telling her story, Franny begins to write down her testimony, begging her defending barrister to read and to share it. Beginning with her life as a slave on a Jamaican plantation, Franny goes on to explain how she first arrived in London, became a maid to Mrs. Benham, and finally the dreadful events that culminated in her arrest and trial. The Confessions of Franny Langton is an extraordinary page-turner of a novel that reignites gothic literature and adds a vital voice to the canon of literary heroines. The book has received a great deal of praise since its release in the UK and has already been featured in Oprah magazine in anticipation of its American publication on the 21st of May. The Confessions of Franny Langton is also currently being adapted for a television series, which I'm very excited about and can't wait to see, as I know this novel will be absolutely brilliant dramatised. I had such a fascinating chat with Sarah about her book and why she felt compelled to write it, and I know that Tea and Tattle listeners will really enjoy this conversation too. Let's get started with the show. Hello, Sarah. Thanks so much for being on Tea and Tattle today. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been really looking forward to talking to you. I absolutely loved your debut novel, The Confessions of Franny Langton. It was such a page turner. I only read it in a few days. I just couldn't put it down. Thank you so much. That's actually one of my favorite compliments because that's my favorite kind of book to read, one that I can't put down. And so to hear that from readers means so much to me. Oh, well, I love a good page turner, but you must be so excited that the book really is now out in the world. And I've been following you along on Instagram and I can just tell you're enjoying like every second of it. (laughs) I'm totally on cloud nine. It's a moment that I dreamed of for so long. I've wanted to write a novel and have a novel published for as long as I can remember. But it's also one of those things that seems impossible until you do it. And so to be in this kind of impossible moment, I keep on having to pinch myself, really. It's a dream come true. Oh, well, it's so well deserved. And I mean, like I said, I really loved the novel. I think I fell for the heroine, Franny, as soon as I discovered that she is a huge reader and she'll read pretty much anything and everything. And I really empathized with that. And I'm sure that you do as well. I can tell that you're a real reader. But I wanted to ask you a bit about that and about the books that you read as a young woman that made you the woman and the writer that you are today. 
I love that readers can recognize each other and feel that kind of kinship. It's For me, it's one of my favorite things about having been a lifelong bookworm. And that aspect of Franny's personality is definitely autobiographical. One of the only autobiographical bits of the book, <laughs> I hasten to add. I There's a real sense in which I discovered who I was and more importantly, who I wanted to be in the world through reading. And I still remember that magic moment of recognizing myself crackling off the page when I read about Joe March and Elizabeth Bennett and Jane Eyre, all of the ones I'm sure you'd recognize, you know, a a young girl bookworm's dream. Um, And I really identified with them, these serious women standing on the outside of things, observing. I wanted to be them and at the same time felt like I was them. And a life that developed after a kind of introduction to my own sense of identity in that way, Um, ultimately turned to questions of, well, yes, I could see myself in these women, but also there was a sense in which I knew they hadn't been written for me. And I wanted with Franny to try to explore that question. What does it mean when you're excluded from this world, this beautiful world of literature Mm. that you love, when the books that you love don't love you back. And so that Franny has this experience as a result of being educated and being literate, which is both wonderful and terrible Mm. at the same time. Yeah, I read an article that you wrote in which you quoted the wonderful Toni Morrison saying, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. Was that partly why you wanted to become a writer, was to write these books that you didn't get to read or you wish you could have read as a young woman? Was Franny a a real response to that? Absolutely. I think novels start with questions and the questions for certain novels identify the spaces you're trying to fill with your own writing. And one of the questions I had been left with after this lifelong obsession with books, and in particular with the classic Gothic novels, was that very idea that there had never been space made for a character like me or who had anything in common with me in any way. And the question I started with, I remember it very clearly, was why can't a black woman be the star of her own gothic romance? Mm. And as I was thinking about that question, I thought about how I could find a different space for a black character to occupy in historical fiction than we had seen before. And that led me to the idea of this young girl growing up on a plantation, really attracted to the books and to the life of learning that she can see through the window, but doesn't quite know how to get access to. Mm. And, And then also to the women who are on the periphery of this life themselves, but seem to to Franny impossibly glamorous. And Mm. and in the case of her mistress in England, incredibly attractive. Um, And the Gothic romance came from there really. Yes. Why especially did you want to write a Gothic romance? Did you have a particular fascination with Gothic literature? I always have. I love the feeling of breathless suspense while you're racing through the pages of a good Gothic. Just on that level as a reader, it really appeals to me and I really connect with that kind of dark and delicious reading experience. I have a very twisted imagination, I think. (laughs) 
Um, but then as a writer, I felt that the Gothic is also this wonderful form for safely experiencing or providing a safe experience of our worst fears. So mm. I was thinking about and writing about some very challenging things in the novel. And it seemed the Gothic almost presented itself as the ideal vehicle to do that. This idea that we've been haunted by this past, you know, in the Caribbean, in the Americas, in England as well, the the colonial past yeah. and the history of slavery. And it had been dealt with in very serious literary fashion before. But I was trying to do something different. And I thought, this is what the Gothic does. It, it's a way of of expressing how we're haunted by that past and perhaps cathartically trying to find some way to exercise that. Yeah, well, I read um, a fantastic review of The Confessions of Franny Langton just the other day, and the reviewer made the point that you're really doing something different with the gothic genre. In some ways, you're kind of going back to those darkest roots of it um, because you really do explore some very dark things within the book and putting it across as a gothic novel, I feel, worked really well. But you're bringing a, a fresh take to this genre as well. It's not just a sort of, you know, ghost story set in a Victorian mansion. You're doing something so much more interesting with the genre, which I find really exciting. I think that is one of the exciting things about the gothic form for me as a writer as well, that it holds the old and the new in perfect balance, that you can address something that is incredibly relevant to the things we're afraid of now by looking at those old classic terrors, the crumbling dark mansions and the frightened woman and the, in the case of my novel, directly inspired by Frankenstein, this idea of these mad scientists being visited by the terrible consequences of their awful experiments. That was definitely one of the most horrific and disturbing things to read in your book was you make this exploration through it of scientific racism and what Franny sees and what she has to go through is completely appalling. And I was so horrified um, when I read a bit about the book and I realized that this stemmed from real research that you did. You know, this this type of thing was actually written about and it happened. Did you already know that before you started researching um, this era in literature or did you stumble across this when you were starting to research it? A lot of it came as a shock to me. Mm. It was one of the most shocking experiences I had writing the book. I had a rule for myself when I was writing the book that I wouldn't invent anything terrible, that the terrible experiments and all of the science I referred to had to be connected to something that really happened in some way. And I quickly learned that there were going to be many, many things too terrible for me to include in the novel. The scope of it was even even worse, mm -hmm. really, than, than you could possibly cover. 
Um, and I, what, what was really shocking to me about it, apart from the horrific nature of what was done, was how much of modern scientific and philosophical knowledge was built wow. on the opinions of the men who had been very keenly involved in all of this stuff. You know, they were fundamentally misguided, and yet we've inherited a lot of our ideas about what it means to be human in the world from these same men, men like Voltaire and Hume and Thomas Jefferson, who said no black had ever uttered a thought above the level of plain narration. And so some of the finest minds of the Enlightenment were obsessed with this idea of debating whether or not black people were human which I don't think is something that we explore often enough when we talk about the Enlightenment. And it certainly wasn't something that I had encountered in any great detail until I started to research the novel. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I mean, these things really need to be drawn to light, discussed more. Um, you can't just turn away from the horrific part of history. And it's really important that these things are spoken about and written about in the way that you're doing it. And also through fiction, you know, because fiction is such a wonderful way of getting a message across, you know, not not just through nonfiction. I think, I mean, I, I always say when people ask, you know, why, why might you argue that fiction is more important than history? I always say you could survey the whole historical record and there would still be so much left that you didn't know about what it means to be alive. And the really interesting thing to me about historical fiction and about this aspect of the novel in particular is that it isn't stuck in the past. There's so much that's relevant to issues that we are debating now. Mm. And one of the really horrifying things about researching the roots of scientific racism is how strongly some of those ideas persist, in particular in, in very conservative and alt-right um, circles of thought today. Yeah. And so it's important to view it not as something that we've left behind, but that's something that we have to be constantly vigilant about, I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. The book is framed by a trial at the Old Bailey. And I was really interested to learn that you worked as a lawyer for 17 years, where you worked as a lawyer, not as a barrister. But I was wondering how much your experience in the law influenced the book, influenced your writing, if at all. So the answer to that probably is a great deal and not at all. <laughs> um, not at all in the sense that I was never a criminal barrister. I'm the daughter of a criminal barrister. Oh. So I grew up watching my dad kind of practice jury speeches and getting ready for trial. And, and that, um, you know, I, I saw it from afar, if you like, but I never did it myself. Um, and so I had to do a lot of research. I had to immerse myself not only in practice at the criminal bar, but practice at the criminal bar in the early 19th century, which meant, you know, going through the old Bailey archives and and really finding some very hard to find sources. But I think it my experience as a lawyer influenced my writing the novel in this way, that I became a lawyer because I felt very strongly as a young bookworm who counted Atticus Finch as one of her sort of fictional heroes, that lawyers could fight injustice, that they could change the world, that they could help people, they could make things right. And I even though I became a bit disillusioned in practice, I still had that sort of idealistic sense that 
lawyers hold real power to make things better for people. And it's one of the noble aspects of the profession. And so Franny's barrister in the novel was inspired by that idea that he's going to fight on her behalf against the odds. Um, that he's he's one of the good examples of the profession, if you like. And then there was this kind of playful nod to the fact that I had observed many men barristers in court and um, the way courtrooms are places that are full of ego and posturing and play acting. And so I had some fun in the novel writing the scenes where you get those kind of quirks and aspects of the personalities of the barristers and the judge as well. Yeah, they were brilliant scenes in the book, but Franny's lawyer is definitely quite a sympathetic character. And, you know, it's significant that her confession as it were her own manuscript is addressed to him she obviously trusts that he will do something with it um which is wonderful but she trusts that he'll do something with it but she also says there's a bit of irony there as well because she also says it's a commentary on who had the power to get things published at the time Mm. so at one point she explains that she's writing to him because who else is going to find her an english publisher but a white man yeah and it's kind of a sort of cheeky (laughs) nod to what might have prevented her from telling her own story at the Mm, time yeah Um, but before we talk about the book a little bit more would you mind reading an extract from it sure I'd love to I'm going to read from the beginning um, which is Franny being brought into the old Bailey uh, to start her trial my trial starts the way my life did a squall of elbows and shoving and spit From the prisoner's hold, they take me through the gallery, down the stairs, and past the table crawling with barristers and clerks. Around me a river of faces in flood, their mutters rising, blending with the lawyer's whispers, a noise that hums with all the spite of bees in a bush. Heads turn as I enter, every eye a skewer. I duck my head, pair at my boots, grip my hands to stop their awful trembling. It seems all of London is here, but then murder is the story this city likes best. All of them swollen into the same mood. All of them in a stir about the sensation excited by these most ferocious murders. Those were the words of the Morning Chronicle, itself in the business of harvesting that very sensation like an ink-black crop. I don't make a habit of reading what the broadsheets say about me, for newspapers are like a mirror I saw once in a fair near the Strand that stretched my reflection like a rack, gave me two heads, so I almost didn't know myself. If you've ever had the misfortune to be written about, you know what I mean. But there are turnkeys at Newgate who read them at you for sport, precious little you can do to get away. When they see I'm not moving, they shove me forward with the flats of their hands, and I shiver despite the heat, fumble my way down the steps. Murderer. The word follows me. Murderer. The mulatta murderess. And so the second extract, Franny is in the courtroom, the indictment against her has been read, and she's watching the barristers get ready to start the trial, but just as they're about to start, she is swept away into this memory 
of a time, a happier time when she and her mistress were in bed together and her mistress was about to read her a poem. A wave of memory breaks. She's lying in bed up on her elbows with her toes pointing into the air. In her hand an apple I'm trying in vain to coax her to eat. Listen. Are you listening? She kicks one of her heels. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. I'm only half listening, because it is impossible, this thing that is happening, my mistress lying with me in her bed and reading me a poem but also because it was one of those times when it fell to me to watch what they called the balance of her mind, like a pot I had on the stove. Is she well? I'm asking myself. Is she well? She turns to me. Do you like it? Who is it? I ask, stirring her hair with my breath. Shelley, though I like Byron better, don't you? The Prince of Melodrama. She turns over suddenly onto her back and closes her eyes. Byron is proof, if ever it were needed, that a man is merely spoiled by his vices while a woman is soiled by hers. Oh, Francis, Francis, don't you think everyone should be prescribed a poem a day? Woman cannot live on novels alone. She was right about that. A novel is like a long, warm drink but a poem is a spike through the head. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So going back to the beginning of you writing this book, I was really interested to read that initially you were quite reluctant to write about a woman who had been a slave. And in fact, in the novel, Franny very deliberately points out that her story is not, and I quote, one of those slave histories all sugared over with misery and despair. Would you tell me a bit about that initial reluctance that you had and then what made you change your mind? I was equally drawn to and strongly resisting the idea that the character I would write about would have been a former slave. Um, And I think I resisted it because I've always had this sense that slavery is one of those topics that completely obscures the human beings who had to go through it, that there is a sense in which it's at once too vast and at the same time too reductive to tackle it because we always tend to approach it with the kind of fear or disgust or reverence that doesn't really leave enough room, in my opinion, for covering the full scope of humanity. Um, Because we're busy, understandably, with different agendas. Uh, But I felt compelled to talk about it for two reasons. One, because I had never seen a character like Franny in a context like this. She is a former slave, but she is educated and she's passionate and she's angry and she falls in love. I've never seen a love story involving someone like her. And I felt that there was still that space to tell a different story and that it was a story that was worth telling that I was drawn to. 
But the other thing I think was, why wouldn't we talk about it? It's difficult to talk about, but it's essential to address it. it otherwise, it would be as if we'd found ourselves having woken up after a nightmare and you know we're not allowed to discuss what we dreamt about. I think it's really important to consider both in fiction and nonfiction the legacy of that period of time, that awful period of time, what it might have meant, what it has deprived us of, and what we can reclaim in telling our own stories about it. Mm. And I love that Franny has such a strong voice and, and she is a, a very different character. I mean, as you say, I haven't come across a character like her in fiction ever before. And she also really speaks kind of directly to her reader. She forces you to question what you've read in the past or what assumptions you might make. And I think that is so much a huge part of her charm and your book's charm as well. I mean, how strong her voice really is. And she's such a full, well-rounded character with flaws as well as with a lot of charm. Thank you. That voice um, woke me up many a night during the <laughs> period when I was writing the novel, by the way. There were there were times when I wanted her to be quiet and she just wouldn't be. And, and I also love the fact that she is flawed. For me, that is another thing that I'm very proud about um, when I look back on creating Franny because... The other problem, I think, with novels about enslaved people or people who had been enslaved is this sense that they can only be given a kind of noble victimhood. Um, but going back to this idea I had that we owe it to these people to explore their full humanity, Franny, to me, she's a bit of an anti-heroine, and I like that about her. She's a she's a bad, angry woman of literature, and those are the, the, the characters that I'm quite drawn to myself. She's morally ambivalent. She does some things that I hope I wouldn't have done. But what I hope she does is cause the reader to think about what it would have meant and what what they themselves would have done to navigate their way through the circumstances in which Franny found herself. Yes, absolutely. And in the end, you know, so much of what she does, she does to to survive and also just to also claim her own right to life and to living as good a life and and to get, becoming as educated as well as she as she can. Um, which I think is really admirable. And you know, the thing that makes a difference for Franny is love. So at its heart, I mean, we've talked about the fact that it's quite a challenging, that aspects of the story are quite challenging. But what was always at the heart of the story for me was this very tender, uh, obsessive as well, but tender love that she feels for her mistress mm. in London. It is a life-changing experience for her. It is a life enhancing experience. And I always saw the book as a love story, no matter what other terrible things were going on. And it was the thing that I most enjoyed writing. Mm. Yeah, it is a wonderful love story as well. And that is always at the heart of the book. It reminded me a lot of Rebecca and of Jane Eyre, because although it is a tender love, there are elements of obsession and also just real longing in it too um, which brought these other novels to mind but of course 
your book is very different because it is the mistress rather than the master yes. of the house <laughs> that Franny falls for. Yes. Um, no, no Mr. Rochester character there. Did you enjoy just flipping the traditional gothic romance story on its head? I did so much. <laughs> it was one of my favorite bits. I'll tell you why. In my adulthood, when I reread all of those gothic romances I loved, including Rebecca and Jane Eyre, mm. the one thing I was struck by was how unsatisfactory the heroes actually were. <laughs> That's you so know, true. <laughs> they are incredibly problematic. And I think a modern woman wouldn't have fallen in love with Mr. Rochester, <laughs> but, you know, bless her, Jane Eyre had no choice. <laughs> That's so I, true. Um, I really enjoyed the idea of upending that narrative. And, you know, what, what I think you have in Franny is someone who comes into this mysterious house and falls in love with the mad woman in the attic, you know, yeah. the sort of the trope, the um, on, subverting that trope, yeah. that Madame's upstairs room becomes a kind of safe haven for the two of them. And I, I've said before, it, it was, I conceived her of her as Jane Eyre, um, by whom I was directly inspired in creating the character, but Jane Eyre, if she had been accused of cuckolding and murdering Mr. Rochester, which I think is actually quite a nice sort of updating of that tale. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. I think it was important as well because I, I saw myself as writing a feminist novel. There are many women in the novel who have different levels of guilt and complicity in the things that go on. But what they all have in common is that they're under the thumbs of these two strong male characters who run both of the households. And they're suffering equally from the sort of the agony of thwarted ambition. They, you know, they want things that they can't have because of these men. And Franny, of course, being the central character and, and the way her life is circumscribed and the way she suffers as a result of these two men, I knew it wouldn't fit her narrative for her to then find love with a man in England, that somehow it just felt more natural and true to who she was, that it would be her mistress. Mm. And they're in the same boat, she and Madame, her sort of, who's her mistress in London, this perpetually dissatisfied French woman who wants to write and is told by her husband that she may write, but she cannot publish. Um, and they both, Franny and Madame, they both yearn for more than they have. And what they really want is to tell their own stories. They want to be writers, both of them, and they can't. And this is the thing they have in common and the thing that draws them very strongly together. And there's a line in the novel that Franny says when she talks about why she wants to write her own life story. She says, a man writes to separate himself from the common history, but a woman writes to try to join it. Mm. Um, I loved that quote. That was the, it's the one book, of my favorites line. as yes. well. Yeah. It's, it is, it sums up for me what a tragedy it is and what a tragedy it was for these characters to have the power to tell your own story taken away, mm. to be in the position that women are in now, quite frankly, which is scrambling to catch up with a sort of wealth of both fiction and nonfiction that we've inherited from male writers, you know, almost everything that's ever fallen off of a man's pen. Mm -hmm. um, women have been left behind. Mm. And that was the real, one of the real tragedies that I wanted to explore in the novel. Yeah, it was really fascinating to see how a woman within upper class society was also given so few options, so few choices, and that marriage 
to her was a real trap you know she she had no real freedom herself either still much worse to be the maid <laughs> downstairs <laughs> doing all that hard work yes. um but I thought it was really interesting how you explored two very different women but also what they really had in common but You've said that it was Franny's voice that woke you up in the <laughs> night, uh, started getting you writing. And I mean, I can believe that not only because she has such a strong voice, but there's this real sense of urgency to the story. You know, she must get her story down. And I wondered, how did you pace yourself when you were writing this but having to convey such a sense of immediacy and real urgency with the tale I'm not sure I paced myself <laughs> properly I I think I, I I wrote the novel in quite a feverish and intense mm. burst of of activity over um over a two-year period and part of that was because I had a self-imposed deadline because I'd signed with an agent before I finished the novel and I had to get it to her. I couldn't take my time with it. Mm. But I think the the other part was, as you say, Franny's voice, because she came straight away with a very strong imperative. Mm. Part of it was anger. I could really feel her anger and the fact that that needed to be expressed. And it is an emotion that's going to give that kind of urgency to a narrative. But the other part was, and this was what fueled me during the times when I felt like I wanted to give up on it, mm. the idea that she was filling a space and that if she didn't fill it, it would be left empty. At one point, she says, nobody like me has ever written a novel in the history of the world. And so writing against that kind of injustice, for me, writing against the problem I've always had with the canon that... Um, when you look to historical fiction, black characters are going to be portrayed as victims. Mm. The idea that we have never really seen, I think with the exception perhaps of Toni Morrison's Beloved, at least in my experience, this mm. um, a novel which explores what happens when a black woman in historical fiction fully expresses that sense of anger mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. pushes against the injustice that's been done to her in some way. All of that really drove me. And I think in some mystical way, it drove Franny. It made her flesh and blood for me instead of words on a page. Mm. And so if there's an underlying sense that the novel is driving you know that there's some imperative driving it towards a conclusion it was that mm. well I'm so glad that her voice did speak to you and kept you going through it all because it's such a wonderful book and I feel really privileged to have been able to read such a book um but I always ask Tea and Tattle guests, Sarah, at the end of our interview, if they would give a cultural recommendation. So I'd love to hear about something you've been enjoying lately, whether it's another book or an exhibition, anything really, but I'd love to know. Okay, so anyone who knows me, who's listening to this podcast, will be able to guess what I'm going to say. <laughs> because I've been obsessed with this ever since I saw it. The first time I saw it, I cried. I then spent the rest of my days after seeing it planning how I could see it again. And I feel like it's one of the single most life-changing pieces of art I've ever seen. Oh, with, with that, that build-up, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give a shout-out to Hamilton by Lin-Manuel oh. Miranda, which I saw in Victoria. I think it's in Victoria. Um, 
and which I feel, you know, it really connected with me because I went to see, it was one of my treats after I'd finished Franny. It was off <laughs> in the kind of publication process. And I, I felt immediately that it was, it had the same kind of message, you know, this refrain, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Boy, did that grab me and hold on and it hasn't let go. I, I think I'd watch Hamilton every <laughs> night for the rest of my life if I could. Around about the same time, I watched... Um, the documentary, well, the, the stand-up, I guess you'd call it stand-up, but it was more of a monologue, um, Nanette by Hannah Gadsby on Netflix. And it did exactly the same thing. I remember watching it in complete, or finishing it in complete awed silence and tears. It is just such a profound commentary on what it means to be a woman today, but also what it means to be different, what it means to be an outsider, which I think is what a lot of novelists really occupy themselves trying to <laughs> yes. figure out uh, those two for sure my my big shout outs oh brilliant well I mean I'm dying to see Hamilton I haven't seen it yet but I, everyone I know who has gone to it has just raved about it so much so I absolutely have to make that happen you do sometimes <laughs> <laughs> but um I will look out for Nanette on Netflix too that sounds wonderful and I'll put links to those in the show notes too for our listeners but what's next for you are there any upcoming events or sort of future books that you're able to talk about at all Next, in terms of appearances, I think late May I'm doing um, Leeds on the 22nd of May at Waterstone. So if anyone's listening in Leeds, please do come along to that. I'm working on the script because Franny's being adapted for television and I'm I'm writing the, um, oh. I'm, I'm adapting it myself, which is a really interesting oh, challenge. Oh, wow. Congratulations, Thank though. You. That's wonderful. And then when I can find the time, I'm thinking about book two, which is going to be about a cult because one of my other very strong teenaged obsessions was with cults and cult leaders uh -huh. because I was a strange young lady <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm in my in my free time of which there isn't very much at the moment yeah. I'm thinking about what it must be like to have one of those manipulative personalities that mm. could get people to do anything at your bidding so uh. that's quite interesting oh wow well yes that sounds like it will be a really fascinating topic for book two um but for any listeners who would like to keep up with all your events and all of your news where's best to find you online I tweet most of that stuff. So I'd say Twitter, which is at Mrs. MRS Janie Mac or Instagram at Sarah Collins author. Okay, super. I'll put links to those in the show Thank notes you. too. But Sarah, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you today. Thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. It was completely my pleasure. Thanks, Miranda. That's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thanks so much again to Sarah for her wonderful interview. For all the relevant links, check out the show notes for this episode at teantattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 111. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you shared it with a friend who you think would like it too. Or please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher as great reviews help other people to find the show. If you'd like to get in touch, then come and find Tea and Tattle on Instagram at Tea and Tattle Podcast, or you can always drop me a line at teaandtattlepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep well, be joyful, and stay in touch. Thank you.